When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. To learn more about our leadership development and team building, visit iFlyVirginiaBeach.com. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pizzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. If you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, which I hope you have, um, you will know that I love to have discussions centered around leadership with people who have experience, relative experience, people who have um, experienced both the success and some of the pitfalls of leadership, and there's plenty of both to go around. Today's guest is unique in many ways. His name is Brad McDonald. Brad is a national coach and trainer for Sandler Training, a worldwide sales and leadership training, coaching, and mentoring organization. Uh, Brad previously owned and operated Sadler Training, the Sadler Training office in Virginia. Brad's first career was as a submarine officer in the U.S. Navy. Ooh, submarines. And his love for the Navy and submarines began aboard the submarine his father commanded, the USS Senate, SS-408, during a ride down the Cooper River in Charleston, South Carolina in 1964. That love continued as Brad became a distinguished graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in 1977, commenced his submarine training, and pursued his lifelong dream to become a submarine captain. Love it when people pursue the lifelong dream and it comes true. In 1994, his dream came true when he assumed command of the USS L. Mendel Rivers. Did I say that right, Brad? You did. That's right. The USS L. Mendel Rivers, SSN 686 in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where the Cooper River is. Upon retirement from the Navy, Brad began his most harrowing and traumatic career adventure, um, commission-based sales and entrepreneur. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Navigating the emotionally turbulent seas of sales led Brad to author the book, The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology, and we're going to discuss his book uh, towards the back half of the podcast. In 2005, Brad's son, Tyler, graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy, becoming a third-generation submarine officer and maintaining the family's current status of 78 years of unbroken naval service. 
Most impressive. That is just incredible. For success in life, Brad has two thumb rules, calmness of mind and keep moving. I love those rules. Brad, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. I appreciate it very much. I have an alternate introduction that I use at times. Let's hear it. Uh, Let's hear it. When I'm in front of a group of salespeople um, or even business owners, I usually introduce myself by saying I'm Brad McDonald. I attended a Scottish boys boarding school when I was 12 years old, where I was beaten and whipped on a very regular basis. And then after that, I spent four years at a Catholic boys military high school in Washington, D.C., where I was taught to march with a rifle at the age of 15 by a bunch of retired World War II Army sergeants. After that, I spent four years in semi-solitary confinement at a federal institution on the banks of the Severn River in Annapolis, Maryland. And then I spent 20 years mostly underwater inside a steel tube with a hundred other smelly men. None of those experiences prepared me for the emotional trauma of being a commissioned salesperson. But uh, <clears throat> the journey uh, that followed, uh, I finally cured some of those ills. And, and that's how I came up with the book, The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology. Uh, so that's that's how I frequently introduce myself. Okay, well, that's a much more exciting introduction. I'd say much more <laughs> realistic. You know, uh, entrepreneurs go through those pitfalls. There's no doubt about it. I think in in some capacity, entrepreneur being an entrepreneur is is uh, you know you, you have a disease and uh, it's a syndrome or a sickness or a, I'm not exactly sure what to call it. Well, let's talk about um, early life a little bit. Uh, so your father was a, was a a submarine sailor. You decided to become a submarine sailor. You went to the Naval Academy. Most impressive. Um, and you, did you grow up in Charleston? Well, uh, that's where my dad was a submarine captain in the uh, mid, early to mid 60s. And so I just spent a couple of years there. It was interesting that uh, I attended his change of command in 1964. And 30 years later, at the same pier in Charleston, he attended my change of command. And it really was when that was sort of when I became aware of my father's Navy career really was uh, when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And he uh, I kind of felt sorry for the other boys in the neighborhood whose fathers were not submarine captains. I, <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And in fact, my best friend right across the street, his dad was a submarine captain in the same squadron with my father. And they were good friends. So it was when I became aware of what my father did and he would take me down to the ship on weekends when the ship was in port on Saturday. And I, I, it didn't matter what I, I could just sit in the wardroom and watch him or sit in his little teeny stateroom. And I was very intrigued uh, with that. And I realized that he was in charge. And so uh, there was a day when the ship actually had to take a two hour cruise down the river from one place on the river to another. And he took me and I sat on the bridge uh, of this World War II vintage submarine and watched my father give the orders to con the ship down the river. And he had the stewards bring me chocolate milk and donuts. And I said, man, this looks like a pretty good life right here. So 30 years later at, at my change of command, I, I told that story and I said, dad, I'm still waiting on the chocolate milk and donuts. That's pretty cool. That's fun. That is, that is super fun. Um, and, and, you know, nostalgia heritage. So I served for 26 years. My son is 18 years old and he's in a senior year of high school and he's considering what he's going to do. Uh, my daughter, his, his twin sister, 18 years old, she's thinking about what she's going to do. And um, they haven't seriously considered uh, walking in their father's footsteps, but they've mentioned the possibility. So 
we'll see where that goes. But that's exciting. That's heritage. I mean, that is the that's the essence of heritage, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Where did you spend most of your childhood? Well, we moved a lot. I, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia. And then uh, before I was uh, even a few months old, we moved to California. My dad was in several places on uh, a couple of different submarines in California, San Diego, uh, up in Mare Island. And then uh, we moved to Charleston. I lived in Scotland. That's when I attended the Scottish Boys Boarding School. There was a submarine base in Scotland uh, from 1961 to 1991, a, a U.S. submarine base. My dad was stationed there. So we were always on the move, always on the go. And, oh. it, and, and then, of course, I went in the Navy myself and was always on the go and always on the move until I retired from the Navy. Okay. So, do you, you know, it's very popular for sailors to uh, when they're interacting with each other, when they meet each other, that we often say, what's your hometown? Do you claim a particular city as your hometown? I, I do claim Norfolk, Virginia, only because I was born there. And even though I left when I was six months old and returned at the age of 40, standing <laughs> on the bridge of a submarine, which we were changing home port from Charleston, South Carolina to Norfolk. So that's how I returned to Norfolk. And then uh, re when I retired from the Navy, I set up my business there. So I do claim Norfolk as a hometown. Okay. So retired Navy captain, uh, submarine commander. What is that like? You, you kind of told us what it was like through the, the lens of a child, um, you know, spending time with his father. But what is it like from the, what, from the lens of somebody who is responsible for an asset that's strategically critical to U.S. national security. I think what's very unique about being captain of any ship, whether it is a tugboat or an aircraft carrier or a submarine or destroyer, there's such a unique thing about being captain of a ship because there's an expression that says, in the hour of emergency or peril at sea, there is one man or one woman who can turn to nobody else. You can't ask somebody else in the moment of emergency or peril, what should I do here? You have to be able to act on your own. And because of that, uh, it, it, the old expression, it can be a little lonely at the top. Now, a good captain is certainly going to seek input from uh, those around him or her as to how to run the ship. But there are those times, like I said, emergency or peril at sea, when you have to make quick decisions. And the power is rather absolute, rather ultimate. And uh, I think by that time, I remember asking, uh, there was a wonderful admiral named Admiral Meese, who when I was captain of a submarine, uh, we, we deployed to the Mediterranean Sea, and he was the commander of the American submarine group in the Mediterranean, and he boarded our ship in Gibraltar for the two-day ride to the next port. And he and I were walking around the ship, and he, uh, at, at one point, he said, how's it going? And because I, I was four months into my command tour, the the absolute pinnacle of a Navy uh, naval officer's uh, career is typically command of a ship. He said, how's it going? And I said, well, it's going well. I said, the the one thing I've noticed is lacking is I don't seem to get a lot of feedback about how I'm doing. And he looked at me and he said, McDonald, if you don't know how you're doing by now, you shouldn't be here. And I said, oh. Okay, I won't ask that question again. Uh, in other words, that well, the lesson was clear. Yeah, yeah, that's. Um, th I think there's a lot of parallels there in the uh, in the private sector as well. You you owned your own uh, business with Sadler Training for a little while. Were there any? 
Did, did you have employees with that business? I, I had for 12 years. I did have employees. It wasn't a huge business, just a handful of employees. Um, and, and there's, there's certainly a lot of parallels. I mean, you got, you got to make the ultimate decisions. Normally we, I would say there's not a lot of emergencies in sales training. So yeah. nobody's going to die in a sales call. We're not going to lose the ship. Feels like it sometimes I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, I know. And it's, it, it is, it can be when more you're on emotional. The receiving end. I was never scared of dying at sea for my country. I wasn't scared of the biggest enemy, which is the ocean or the Soviets or the Koreans or the Libyans. It, I, those things didn't bother me as much as, as I already mentioned, alluded to the emotional trauma of being a business owner. Yeah. And uh, it, it certainly wasn't a matter of life or death there. But one of the parallels that I realized was that uh, in, in the Navy, uh, because I had seven captains on four different submarines before I became a captain on my fifth submarine, uh, I had had the chance to observe a, a lot of leadership styles. And I made a very concerted effort before I went to command to define in a written manner what is my leadership style. Most commanding officers of ships have a document that they will just call my command policy. And it's a letter to each crew member that kind of says, this is me. My first captain, when I was a 22-year-old ensign, I left the Naval Academy and I drove across country to San Diego to report to my first submarine. And the captain, his name was McDonald also, like mine. And we called him Mad Dog, not to his face. Um, Big Jack Mad Dog McDonald. And he uh, sat me down in his stateroom the day after I got there and gave me this thing called my command policy. And I read it. I didn't. I'm 22 years old, fresh out of the Naval Academy. And I remember reading this line that says, my temper ranges between Irish and unreasonable. I didn't know what it meant, but I wasn't going to ask him. I was too afraid to ask him. I found out two weeks later when I caused a problem on the ship what it meant. And he was in my face screaming, flaming at me. Oh, that's what it means to have a temper between Irish and unreasonable. But I did remember thinking, well, you know what? He told me. He warned me. He gave me a heads up. People like to know what to expect from their leader. So something I did uh, on the ship and in the business world was create my own leadership philosophy. I've heard this called a lot of things. Leaders compass, leadership philosophy, my yeah, command policy. Personal mission statement. I've heard. Yeah. And and so what I did in my business as well as on the ship was I wrote a letter to, and it's saying, this is what you can expect from me. These are my standards. These are my idiosyncrasies. These are my absolute, don't violate these, uh, things like that. And this is what I expect from you. And I think when leaders take the effort to do that, to document their leadership philosophy and expectations and give it to people in written form, I think it clarifies a lot of things. Uh, and particularly, what do you expect from me and what can I expect from you? Yeah, no question about it. And, uh, you know, and coming up through the ranks throughout my military career, there was always the commanding officer's vision. Uh, they would come up with two or three bullets that would hang on the wall. And, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, throughout my career anyway, those weren't reinforced as much as they should have been. If that's a commanding officer's vision, then we all better know it, maybe word for word, and we all really need to get behind it. Um, now, the commanding officer's vision in the military is slightly different than mission, vision, values in the private sector, um, because mission, vision, values in the private sector, some people may choose not to get behind it. 
Um, hopefully that's not the case, but, um, you, you know, the, meaning the job just might not be a good fit for them overall. And, and they move on much more easily than in a, in a military setting, but I do same thing. So my, my document, and I'll show you, show you a picture of it right here. So I've got oh, like that my 2022 strategy, mission, vision values. That's mine. That really nice. never changes, but, um, and then we have a motto that I stole from the air force excellence in all we do. And then, uh, but really the pillars of the strategy as, as uh, graphically represented are culture within the organization, focus areas, and then the goals, which are measurable, you know, things that, but um, so mission, vision, values is mine. The rest is built by everybody else in the organization, you know, and, and that stuff can change from time to time. It, it should change from time to time, but philosophically, we're on the exact same page. Uh, and I like that. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. What so. Go, go I was ahead. just going to tell you one other little thing about that. Uh, when I work with leaders or managers or coaching them, I, I have them create their own document. I, I kind of walk them through it. And the first thing I ask them to do is to think about what are your leadership principles? And of course, most people haven't thought about that either. Right. That's and right. I just give them, I give them a simple example. I say that's the seven leadership principles that I wrote down almost 30 years ago now and carried in my pocket every day when I was on that ship. What were sure. they? Uh, number one was be approachable and in control of yourself. Because if you can't control yourself uh, over things going wrong, if you if you become explosive and blow up at people, how are they going to believe you can control the ship in the hour of emergency or peril? So that was number one, be approachable and in control of yourself. Number two, be consistent. Pretty simple. Yep. Uh, I said, yep. be consistent because people would rather work for a guy that's a jerk every day than somebody that's a jerk one day, nice next day and unknown the third exactly day. Exactly right. Yep. Be the, you got to be that same person every single day. That way they know what to expect. Third one was be fair and just, which is a difficult to measure because our kids say that's not fair. And we say, well, too bad. Life's not fair. But when you're the captain of a ship, you have an incredible amount of power over people. You have the power to restrict them to the ship in port, to limit their pay, to reduce them in rank. And of course, as business owners, we also have power, hire and fire. So I said, be fair and just. Did you do everything you could to be fair and just? So the fourth one was set the standards. The commanding officer sets the standards. The business owner sets the standards. I always believe that if your people, Bob, see you walk over one piece of trash, on the facility. That's the new standard. It's okay. He Not didn't pick it up. Why, why should I, if you don't, you know, if you're, if your clothes don't look good or your haircut's not sharp, that's the, whatever in general, and this is not an indictment of people. It's just my observation that in general, most people will not strive for a higher standard than that, which they see from their boss. So set the standards. The uh, number five is continuously supply energy and enthusiasm for whatever is to be done. And I don't know what the grunt work at your company is, but there's some grunt work. And if sure. you want your people to do it enthusiastically, they got to see you do it enthusiastically on a Navy ship. That's field day cleanup. Yeah. And, and my, when I was the captain of the ship, same I said, a, same thing in a three-story building, <laughs> right? Everybody cleans up. Nobody gets to leave a mess behind. I have to be as enthusiastic as I want them to be. Uh, number six was, uh, be yourself, but always be the fill in the blank. Um, in our case, a business owner. And when I was a captain of the ship, be yourself, but always be the commanding officer. And there was a story about a British admiral many uh, decades ago who was talking to a group of his commanding officers. 
And he said to them, your crew will never forget the sight of you pushing a pickle down the bar with your nose. <laughs> and what he meant was there was a game that British sailors played in a bar where they would push a pickle down the bar with their nose. And at the end of the bar, they would take a shot of booze. And his point was, if you want to go out with your men for one drink, that's fine. After that, get back to the ship. They don't need a buddy. They need a captain. It's what they really need. It might yeah. seem fun to hang out with them, but there's no need to. So be yourself, but always be the fill in the blank because your people look to you to be whatever that role is, manager, owner. And the, the seventh one is um, make the troops proud that I am their fill in the blank owner, CEO. That's my seven principles. Yeah. You know what? Every single one of those directly translates to the private sector. You know, the, the, the pickle comparison, for example, it's the same thing when you're the leader of an organization, they need to see you be a leader and they, and they don't really want to see you be something less than that or other than that. And, and it can, it can throw them off. And then the seventh one, you know, they, your, your, it, it, culture and values is something that I spend a lot of time looking at as as the leader of my organization, and uh, and course, culture and values, by the way, is according to Gallup and Glassdoor, is the number one factor in in the workplace today. When mm, employees, yeah, when they're looking to work somewhere, um, they put culture and values over pay and compensation, and there's a lot of components to that. But one of those components is they want to be proud of the team they're on for sure. They they want to uh, go tell people what an awesome place they work they work at or uh, what an awesome person they work for. And that leads to many other benefits such as where do we get um, our best teammates and where do we get our new hires mm. from? It really comes from personal referrals of people who are, who are already on the team. Uh, so that's 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 big as far as I'm concerned. Well, I'm glad you have those seven principles and you carry them with you. Um, you know, from from the day you wrote them down and, until this day, one of the things I do in the Elevate Your Leadership uh, experience is have people define leadership in their own words. Mm. Um, and so for me, that leadership and again, to my regular podcast listeners, they uh, hopefully they know this by heart by now. But I define leadership in two words, and that's enabling others. So my job as a leader is is more fully to enable others to accomplish their objectives. And, you know, if you you're conscious and deliberate about that, then you can really make that happen. And again, some other places, I think it's maybe Maxwell or some of the other leadership organizations, they call that a personal mission statement. Um, but as you said, that uh, that transfers directly into the private sector. So how, how long ago did you own your business? How, you know, and how long did you own it? When did you get rid of it? I bought, I started it in 2004, had it for 12 years, and right around the uh, 11 and a half year point, uh, a gentleman uh, walked up to me at my locker at the YMCA in Norfolk, and he said, you ever thought about selling your business? I thought, well, that's an interesting question. I, I thought, be careful how you answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, why'd you ask? And he said, I've always wanted a business like that. I said, well, let's talk. So six months later, he bought it from me. And then the, uh, the Sandler corporate office, which is near Baltimore, uh, hired me to be a national coach and trainer. To, there's about 250 franchises around the world, mostly in the U.S. and Canada. And so they hired me to uh, train and coach these other franchise owners. So that's what I do. I loved it while I had the business. I'll be very blunt though and say, uh, 
one thing that I think if there was a reason I sold it, it was because I was tired of prospecting uh, guys like you and me. And a lot of people love not having a boss and love running the show and being the leader, calling your own shots. But uh, every job has its grunt work. And the grunt work of that job was prospecting. Yeah, uh, I, I did a fairly good job at it, but I, I got tired of it. No, I totally agree. Sales and marketing. So in my in my business, I have 40 people. I have uh, now two people in my sales and marketing department. But, um, you know, when I had the dream of opening iFly Virginia Beach indoor skydiving, I certainly had no visibility and I did not dream of the sales and marketing uh, that goes into this. But uh, but it's reality. And I hired competent people and I I make sure that they are properly manned, trained and equipped. Right. Little title 10 there. So they have what they need to do the, to do their job. Can um, I ask you a question? Sure. I'm curious if you can relate to this experience, because when I got out of the Navy and spent two and a half years as a financial advisor and then heard about Sandler and decided to start the Sandler business. So I went to the, I gave, uh, in Sandler, we have a joke that says you give Sandler a lot of money for the right to sit in your basement and make cold calls. And I went to the, I went to the initial eight day training program for new franchisees and then came back to Norfolk and I had rented a small office and I'm sitting in that office on the first day, scared to death, looking at the door. There's nobody out there that's asking, hey, can I buy some of this? Nobody. Right. And uh, nobody knew who I was. And nobody really in town had heard of Sandler. And you're thinking, okay, I got nothing but bills right now. <laughs> nothing coming in. And that was, uh, to me, that's a pretty scary defining moment. But it starts slowly. And you start making the cold calls, start prospecting. I'm just curious if you can relate to that scary feeling. Um, so in terms of uh, uh, scary, in terms of like longevity and stuff like that. Well, starting a new business from scratch. Yeah. So, of course. Yeah, without a doubt, there's all that. And even today, I mean, you know, sometimes COVID, right? Sometimes it seems like business, any business, I think, is a house of cards. You oh, know? yeah. Right. It can go away quickly. Yeah. The forecast and the horizon looks great one day. And then the next day you go, what happened? You know? So, so, so yeah, that trepidation um, comes, I think with, with any business and um, the more, the more responsible, or I would say serious business owners and entrepreneurs, you know, that 100% can relate to that. Um, you know, and in my case um, it's a multimillion dollar facility we generate uh, millions of dollars in income every year. I have 40 employees. You know, I'm responsible for their livelihood. And you're signing income. the front of a lot of checks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So, so, so yes. And that is something that I would say is, you know, in the conscious or semi-conscious mind, um, 24 seven. So, right. um, so, okay. So then you sold and, and when, did, when did you sell? Uh, 2000 at the end of 2015. Okay. Okay. And then you went into private coaching consulting from that point? Well, I mean, I'm, a, uh, I work with San for Sandler systems, which is the franchisor of these 250 franchises around the world. Okay. So that's, that's the home office, the headquarters up in uh, Owings Mills, Maryland. And so I, I work for them as a national coach and trainer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And of course, you and I came in contact with each other through a mutual friend, Marty Strong. Marty's been on this podcast uh, twice, once for each book that he's written, um, Be Nimble, his first book, and Be Visionary, his second book. 
And, uh, you know, Marty told me about the time that you and him served together, deployed together, I guess would be uh, the more correct way of saying it. But can you kind of share that experience of a submarine commander, somebody who holds strategic power, literally in the palm of his hands, uh, having this SEAL commander uh, come on board your vessel and sail around the world with you? Yeah. And um, yeah, Marty and I were on the submarine together. Uh, for the better part of a year, and he was the SEAL team commander. The submarine, the Elemental Rivers at the time, was outfitted with what's called a dry deck shelter, which is uh, kind of like a garage mounted to the top of the submarine, and it houses a SDV, SEAL delivery vehicle, which is essentially a mini submarine. And so we had a detachment of SEALs on board. And, and when you take uh, an already crowded submarine with 110 to 120 crew members and there's not even enough bunks for all those people there's there's hot bunking that goes on where three sailors have to share two bunks uh, you know one guy's always up so the other guys can have a bunk so it's already crowded and then you say we're bringing a seal team of 25 people on and we're going to make them live in the torpedo room and uh by the way they're going to be eating food, watching movies, breathing the oxygen. They're just going to be in the way. Doing push-ups. Right, except when they're doing their mission. It is a tremendous challenge to get these two cultures. And these are two cultures with, you know, your your, uh, your uh, mission board you showed me had culture on it. And part of the culture is of the SEALs, which I understand is they're the best in the world. They probably are. And American submariners think they're pretty good too. So you got these two cultures and – and now the SEALs are essentially telling the submariners, hey, you're just going to be our bus drivers. Uh, <laughs> it's a tough, tough uh, to blend those cultures. And Marty was masterful at, uh, and theoretically, he reported to me, you know, I was the commanding officer of the ship and he was subordinate. But we really worked as a team and he was masterful at making sure every SEAL and and any person on his team really got into the culture of the submarine and didn't uh, try to, you know, play any kind of games or anything. Yeah. Or, didn't or belittle. Or, uh... Yeah. He, he really made it work together very well. It was uh, impressive. He, he, and by the way, I had a couple of these seal commanders and he was the best by far. Okay. I'm not just saying that cause he's my, cause he, cause you know him, it was true. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Marty's unique personality for sure. Uh, but but, you, you know, working together, I mean, that's a key hallmark or a key component of leadership is being able to work with people. In some cases, people who you don't necessarily want to work with or you think this is this is going to be unpleasant, uh, you know, to some degree, um, taking the high road and, you know, jocking up and doing what you have to do is is a key component of leadership as far as I'm concerned. And, and uh, you and Marty certainly demonstrated that. If you have Marty's book, Be Nimble, if you look at the uh, the preface, I wrote that, and it describes the culture of these two groups coming together and Marty's uh, masterful uh, orchestration of that whole thing. Yeah. You know, that alone makes makes it worth reading. Uh, I, obviously, I have read it, and, and that's a great little introduction to, to, to Marty, but also the story behind it, um, you know, these two groups coming together and, and I made the analogy in there. I'm sorry to interrupt. I made the analogy no, 
of a crucible and of course a crucible was in ancient times when the uh, when the wizards were trying to turn iron into gold they had a crucible uh, which was a little pot in which they would uh, apply lots of heat and you, you might have heard the term crucibles of leadership and so I, I would say uh, having all those people together on a submarine, that was a crucible <laughs> of uh, leadership. And, and Marty certainly more than passed the test. For sure. Oh, oh I meant to ask earlier, uh, USS L. Mendel Rivers. Who was L. Mendel Rivers? He was a congressman uh, that served in the U.S. Congress from 1940 until his death in 1970 from Charleston, South Carolina. And he was a big uh, proponent of the military. Even my, of course, my father was a, a captain in of a submarine in Charleston during the, during Elmendo River's time in office. And my dad, remember when I told him what ship I was going to, he said, "Oh yeah, old Elmendo Rivers." He said, "He said, man, when the Navy was coming out with a whole bunch of nuclear submarines, they announced that Charleston would not be." one of the ports for nuclear submarines and Elmendo Rivers said, think again. <laughs> uh, and he said, Elmendo Rivers got nuclear submarines in Charleston. He, so anyway, he was, uh, when he, when he passed away, his two daughters, Marion and Peg, they started lobbying to get a ship named after their father. <clears throat> and the father of the nuclear Navy, Admiral Rickover, when once asked, why did we stop naming submarines after fish? Because up until the uh, 60s, all submarines were named after fish. When asked that, Rick Over said, because fish don't vote. And so <laughs> we started naming submarines after notable Congress people and statesmen and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's just that simple. Fish don't vote. That's going to go in the, the show headline. Right. Right. Fish. Fish don't vote. So, so you talked. We talked a little bit about Charleston, and in your bio, you talk about diving the the oceans of the world inside a submarine. And of course, my career as a Navy diver, Navy EOD tech, I dove the oceans of the world, uh, but not in a submarine. But um, but I was so you, diving. You were you were much more exposed. I, well, so much so that uh, when we were diving in the Charleston Harbor one day, uh, recovering a. Uh, we were floating a, a large barge that sank during one of the hurricanes. Uh, one of the submarines was doing its pre-underway checks, and I was the the uh, recipient of of a blast of sonar. So, oh my gosh, that's yeah, not good. Yeah, so that was uh, that was a, a memorable event to say the least. Okay, let's... now I, I would like to point out to the listeners that normally we have interlocks to make sure that if there's a diver in the water, we don't do that. So somebody made a mistake that day. Yeah, yeah, we ran our tag out uh, with all the ships and subs on the pier, and some something didn't go right. But um, so let's kind of transition to your book, "The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology." So my my experience in the leadership space has um, led me to write a book. It's at the publisher now. Uh, but why did you write this book? Well, uh, the first question might might be, how did I write it? Because I didn't really sit down in the moment to write a book, although I for, for decades I wanted a book with my name on the front that I didn't self-publish. And so uh, when I began my, my business, and we already talked about the trials and tribulations of trying to find clients and customers in the early years, and 
uh, I was only a few weeks into it, and I saw there was an article in the uh, Virginian Pilot, the local paper, uh, inside the business section on Sunday. And so it, I, I said, this article just looks like it was written by some small business owner. How did this person get in here? And I found out anybody could submit an article. So I wrote an article about sales and I sent it in. And a week later, there it was in the Sunday paper. And I thought, that's great. And the next morning, I got a phone call from a guy who said, I read your article. I need to come talk to you. Okay. When do you want to come? He said, today. And I said, all right, come on in. He came in. Uh, he got there at 10 o'clock in the morning. We talked for 46 minutes and he said, I think I need to go get you a check. And I'm like, wow, that really worked well. Well, I, I had 150 articles published in the next several years and it never worked that well again. <laughs> but uh, I, I, for me, writing is therapy. Uh, I'm sure some people skydiving is therapy. But for me, there's about five things in life that, I, that are therapeutic. And one is writing. And so I would sit down just about every Sunday afternoon and write an article about sales and pick on any experience I had had or something I'd heard on the radio. And most of the articles were published in the local business journal, Inside Business or Virginian Pilot or places like that. And so then about five years ago, took the 150 articles, picked 40 that were on a common theme, which is the psychology of sales. And uh, we turned it into a book. So that's how it came about. Uh, and I'm, I, I have no education in psychology other than all my own reading. I think I took one three-hour psychology course at the Naval Academy uh, just because I had to take something besides engineering courses. But I, I uh, read a lot, and I, I realized that the psychological battles that salespeople deal with are probably as important, significant, and traumatic as anything else they deal with. And, and when I said, you know, none of those experiences in my life had prepared me for the emotional trauma of sales, there's a lot of truth to that. When I, I, I you were, you were a tough guy on all these dives, and I thought I was a tough guy on submarines. But when I had to make my first cold call, I was terrified. Totally get it. One hundred percent agree with that. Couldn't yeah. believe it. I, my yeah. hand was shaking, and I said, "Why is that so hard?" Yeah. And yeah. so that, that kind of led me on that quest. Well, that's cool. So so it's a summary, really, of all these individual pieces that you wrote um, for the pilot. You know, I've, I've got a blog and I do a bunch of writing. I keep telling myself I need to submit this to to uh, Inside Business as well. And uh, so thanks for reminding me of that, because I will make a note here to, to actually do that. The pieces are written. But here, here's my experience with writing. And, and, you know, please share. Please share if it's similar or different in your case. As I write about leadership, you know, I, I pick apart components of leadership, performance versus behavior, leadership versus management, you know, a lot of these classic dichotomies, but what has my experience been? And, and, and how can I keep this stuff in my conscious mind going forward? So when I encounter it, I'm ready for it. And so I have all these kind of tools at my disposal. You mentioned, um, or you, you alluded to at the very beginning, you know, what, what type of leader are you? What are your leadership styles? What are your power types, right? What are your characteristics of leadership? How are you going to present yourself every day? And the more I write about it uh, to to inform others, the more I'm informing myself. You know, yeah, I agree with that. Having this discussion with you is is informative. You know, it's part of my quest for lifelong learning. But yeah, so so any any aha moments there, or how you you just you write about it and you get better at it because you're really digging into it. 
Well, uh, as I said, writing is therapeutic. It's also a lot of self-discovery. I, I do exactly. believe that uh, yeah. writing is, uh, it's, it's a lot of things and we learn by writing. So I took what were some of the most important concepts to me from my Sandler training experiences and things, uh, theories that I learned. What, for example, I learned that uh, a lot of the messages we carry from our childhood, childhood scripting, they subtly make their way into our business. Example, it took me a while to discover this, but I did. When I was in uh, third grade, the same year that uh, we lived in Charleston, my family walked across the street because our neighbors bought a new car. The very neighbor who was the other submarine captain, they bought a new car. And we're looking at this new car. And I said, Mrs. Kennedy, how much did your new car cost? <laughs> Oops. Yeah. What do you think my mother said to me? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't we don't ask questions like that. And then it was uh, four or five years later that I was at the uh, Catholic Boys Military High School in Washington, D.C. And I was home. <clears throat> my mother discern from my conversation that I had been asking the boys in the lunchroom for dimes and quarters to buy ice cream sandwiches and not always being that prompt about paying them back. And my little 92 pound mother, who's still 92 pounds and now 92 years old, she got me down in her face and she said, don't ever let me find out that you're asking people for money. We don't do that in the McDonald family. You need money. You call it, talk to me. You can go earn money. And so when I came into life insurance sales and you had to ask people to bring a checkbook to the second meeting and write a check, I didn't want to do it because mom's on my shoulder. <laughs> don't ask about money and don't ask for money. And that's what I call one of the five psychological barriers or what I call conceptual problems that most salespeople deal with. Uh, <clears throat> uh, a problem asking for money or talking about money because it's not polite. And uh, so some other things. I, I mentioned negative scripts from childhood. I was, this was a good 10 years ago. Uh, I had this lady in my training center who was, came to see me and she sold radio advertising. And I, we were, I said to her at the very beginning, <clears throat> excuse me. I said to her at the beginning, are we talking about you buying sales training? Are we talking about me buying radio advertising? Cause it wasn't clear. And she said, well, a little bit of both. And I said, yeah. okay. So anyway, um, as we talked, she started relaying some of the negative experiences she had as a salesperson. And she referred to many older male business owners who were demeaning to her. One person even said, you must be on crack cocaine charging prices like this. And she would get very upset. So I started to probe and be nosy about her childhood. And she had a father who was a professional golfer a high achiever. And she said, my whole life growing up, my father was on me to be thinner, faster, better basketball player, to lose weight. And she said, I spent my whole life trying to make this guy happy. I just couldn't do it. And I said to her, we'll call her Susie. I said, Susie, is it possible you're taking your dad into your sales calls with you? At which point she started crying. And she said, I never thought about that. I guess I am. And I said, well, um, sorry, I can't really help you with your relationship with your father, but I can help you not take him into your sales calls with you. So that's a negative script from childhood that was limiting her. Uh, some other problems salespeople have are need for approval. We all want to be liked. And if you want to be liked in sales more than you want to make money, yeah. 
that's yeah. going to be a problem. And um, we also have this thing I call bi-cycle, B-U-Y cycle problems. An example is uh, my wonderful father and mother. <clears throat> he died five years ago, but a good 10 years ago, my mother called me one day and she said, uh, I'm so frustrated with your dad. And I said, why is that? She said, well, we went shopping for a winter coat last night for him. Yeah. We went into Burlington Coat Factory and he tried on a coat and he started to walk away. And I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to pay for my new coat. And I said, well, you got, we got to go to several stores. We got to shop around for a better price. I said, mom, leave him alone. He's a decision maker. You're a shopper. Uh, he, he doesn't need to go to <laughs> the guy served in three wars. Just, he just wants to get his coat and go home. <laughs> but the, the real point is that if, if, if you are the kind of person who always needs to think it over and always beats a salesperson up on their price and all that, you're probably going to tolerate that kind of response from your prospects. Decision makers tend to get people to make decisions. So these are just some of the psychological concepts yeah. that I discuss in the book. Well, it, it, they all have great merit. You know, I've been on, I'm, I've been on both sides of most of this and um, you know, right down to the, Hey, did you come here to buy from, to buy? I thought you came here to buy from me, but right. now it looks like you came here to sell to me. Right. And people actually do that quite a bit. I'm surprised how often that happens. Um, but, um, but, you know, back to the childhood reference in, in my discovery in, in establishing my elevate your leadership event, you know, you look back at, coaches and teachers and parents and you know those were your first that was your first exposure to leadership right and, sure um, and people who who don't really consciously develop their own brand of leadership you know i think they default to those early childhood experiences it's just what what got implanted in their dna at some point and when it was time for it to come alive that's what that's what comes out quite often you know, it's funny you mentioned that because when I think the two elementary school teachers that I remember, I remember every teacher's name that I ever had, but the two I remember as the best, they were the best leaders. And I never made that connection until you said that right now. Well, there we go. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> third, yeah. third grade and sixth grade. Yeah. Best teachers in the world. Yeah, exactly. And same thing. I can think back and name, uh, you know, the one teacher in particular who everybody feared you know, and, and I experienced her wrath from time to time, but her compassionate side was even more powerful and um, had even more influence, you know, so. Uh, yeah, so. Mrs. Dodge taught us not to walk over that piece of trash, by the way, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, folks, we're going to take a quick break for capitalism back in just one minute. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay. okay, and we are back talking to Brad McDonald, retired U.S. Navy captain, uh, a nuclear submarine commander and an entrepreneur in the private sector, former business owner, and somebody who has a wealth of knowledge and experience and is an author. And he's authored a pretty cool book, which I haven't read yet, but it's called The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology. And how that book came about is pretty interesting. We just got done talking about that. Last thing, Brad, before we wrap it up, for success in life, you have two thumb rules, not rules of thumb, 
you have two thumb rules, calmness of mind and keep moving. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Well, I think we all have experienced uh, various types of leaders and some were loud and some were quiet and uh, everything in between. My first uh, leadership principle that I talked about a minute ago was uh, uh, be approachable and in control of yourself. And I do believe that uh, when there's a fire in the engine room and flooding in the torpedo room and a bad guy's chasing you and shooting at you, the last thing you need is a captain who can't think straight. You need to stay calm and getting excited tends to get people around us excited. People are looking for calmness from their leader in these moments of emergency or peril. That doesn't mean necessarily being quiet. It just means being able to calmly do what needs to be done. So calmness of mind uh, is just, I guess, another way of saying stay calm. Yeah. And the science behind that is sympathetic nervous system, which uh, which I dive into deep in uh, in my events. But But please continue. And the other one, um, keep moving. Well, you might remember from a great series, Band of Brothers, when Easy Company breaks out of the forest, uh, you know, of the big battle of Bastogne and all that, and they try to take that town of Foy, that the first leader, the, the platoon, the company commander, Lieutenant Dyke, he freezes in the middle of the battlefield. And guys are getting shot all around him because he freezes. And Sergeant Lipton, who was the uh, probably one of the best leaders in that whole group, he grabs Dyke and he says, we are sitting ducks. We have got to keep moving. And then, of course, in comes, um, in comes the, the Lieutenant Spears to take over and relieve Lieutenant Dyke. And Lieutenant Spears immediately gets everybody moving and they take the town from the Germans. And when Sergeant Lipton said that, keep moving, I thought that's it's a metaphor for life. Uh, one of the worst things we can do in life is have a problem and we just stop moving. Uh, so I believe it in so many ways. Physically, what's what's the best thing for a sore anything? Sore hips, sore knees, sore shoulders. Right. Keep moving. Go swimming. Yeah. Uh, go go walking. <clears throat> what's the best thing to do when you're depressed? Move, yeah. move, move, move. So that's where that come from. Pretty simple. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. And like I said, the science behind it is, is proven and it's uh, it's rock solid. So great thumb rules, great uh, two rules of thumb or thumb rules. Brad, uh, what haven't I asked you? Did I leave anything out? Uh, I don't think so. It's been a great time. You probably didn't ask me if I would give you a copy of my book. And um, if you text me uh, your address, I will sign a copy and mail it to you. Uh, all expenses paid. That's awesome. I appreciate that greatly. Uh, Brad McDonald. Oh, and if anybody else wants one, they can go to shop.sandler.com or, of course, Amazon. Yeah, okay. Amazon or shop.sandler.com, the title of the book, The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology. Brad McDonald, thank you for coming on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thank you for your service to our nation. It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today. Thanks so much, Bob. You too. I'm looking forward to skydiving at iFly. Bring it, bring it. Come down with your kids, the whole family. Thank you, Brad. Okay. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com. Robert, 
P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com and connect with him on LinkedIn.